Hi, I'm Heather Bell, and welcome to ETF Working Lunch, an ETF.com podcast in partnership with Women in ETFs, where we get together every other week and talk shop with some of the smartest women in ETFs. Today, I'm speaking with Cynthia Murphy, Director of Research for ETF Think Tank, and my former colleague here at ETF.com. Cynthia, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Heather, I'm so excited to be here. I can't believe I'm on the other side of this microphone today. So super, super honored to be on the working lunch. And I'm super excited to be talking to you. It feels like it's been forever. <laughs> it, it does. It's only been six months, but yes, it feels like forever. <laughs> Can you tell me about what your new job at ETF Think Tank involves and how it's different from your life as a journalist? Yeah, so it's it's a little bit different. As you well know, we worked together for about 12 years at ETF.com. And now I am running research for the ETF Think Tank, which is really part, is like the content engine part of the Toroso Investment Group and the Tidal platform, which is a multi-manager ETF platform in the market. So, you know, I'm still in the content business. I'm in the conversation business. I am in the search of the next interesting ETF story, but it's a little bit different. It's not that day-to-day news chasing. It's it's a little bit deeper research and there's a lot more direct contact with financial advisors and with issuers themselves. We do a lot of networking with both sides uh, of the industry and we connect a lot of the advisors to the issuers. So it's a little bit of a different ball of wax, but fun and challenging for sure. It sounds like it takes a kind of like an exciting new angle on ETFs for you. Yeah, it's to be honest, I, I get to see a little bit of the product provider side and the trading side and, and more the industry side from a different perspective, because, you know, I, I get to see a little bit more behind the scenes of how how the sausage is made, if you will, in a way that us on the just plain media side sometimes don't, don't get as much exposure to. So it's been so much learning. I, I've learned so much in the last six months. I love this team here. They're all great. They are all eager to share what they know. And it's just been really exciting to to learn a lot more granularly about different parts of the ETF ecosystem. Oh, I I just love that you're enjoying your new role so much. That's but I do miss you. I miss you every day, Heather. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely miss you at ETF. So as you've got this, you know, different perspective on the ETF space, what are the trends that you're seeing in the space now? And like, what's standing out to you? So, you know, one of the things we do at the tank is we actually put out every Monday what we call the the ETF KPIs, your key performance indicators. And we track down all sorts of different data points in the industry that kind of help you assess the state of affairs, if you will. And, you know, based on that data that we collect every week, what's interesting is to see that the markets have been so challenging and, and pretty darn terrible this year. But the ETF industry as an industry is actually chugging along pretty strongly. So if you look at overall ETF assets, they're down about 13, 14% year to date. And if you look at the revenue issuers are making from expense ratios, that's down about 15% from where it was at the end of 2021. 
but you have more than 200 ETF launches this year. You have more than 15 brand new issuers to market. We have now at least 260 different ETF issuers in the market. You have more than $300 billion in ETF inflows. You have massive trading volumes like we've never seen before. So it's, you know, I think the pain we're feeling is mostly market performance related, but as a an industry, the ETF wrapper is strong, innovation is strong, more products are coming to market, new players are coming to market, and and investors are using these wrappers. They're, you know, they're trading more with it, they're allocating to it. So it's it's been interesting to see that there's a lot of good, even though we focus so much on, on what's not working and what's bad. And one of the the things that I also think is interesting we track this revenue number, which is how much money you make in the as an ETF provider, how much money the industry generates in terms of revenue from expense ratios. And the percentage of the revenue that's coming from active management is growing. It's still small, only 11 or 12% of total ETF revenues come from active managed ETFs. But that number was single digits last year. So, you know, I think as long as you and I have been in this business, I, at least I remember every year we had this conversation about is now the time for active, but we're actually seeing active take hold and slowly chip away at their market share relative to everything else that's in the market. So that has been cool to watch. Oh, for sure. Like, I think only in like the last maybe two years have active launches outstripped passive launches. I mean, you can futz with that number back and forth, but it it's definitely seems like active has kind of established itself as a presence. But I guess until now, that hasn't been obviously where the flows were going. It's always been to the large core index passive products. Yeah, and and then I think what's even more amazing is that when I think of active and, oh, active is taking hold, that's cool. What kind of active? You think of, you know, you go to names like Kathy Wood, you're looking for the manager that has a name everybody knows or some really interesting way to find alpha out there. But the largest active ETF today is JPST, which is a JP Morgan uh, ultra short bond fund. I mean, there's hardly anything exciting about that space. So it's, it's, I think the active that's working is not necessarily the bells and whistles and all sorts of crazy screens type of active. It's sometimes it can be as simple as an ultra short bond fund at the right time, at the right place, you know, in the right market environment. I think it just speaks to just the overall acceptance of active in the ETF space, the embracing of active managers it, you know, it's is growing in general. So it's it's really an interesting trend. Well, yeah. And passive doesn't have much to offer people right now. It, everything's down in the double digits at this point, year to date, it seems like, except for unless you're looking at energy stocks, it's a pretty grim picture out there. Yeah, I, I mean, in, if you look at flows and you guys at ETF.com track flows better than anybody else in, in the business, it's you know, top 10, top 20 asset gatherers are your classic cheap beta, you know, Vanguard, total market funds type of stuff. And 
which even in that in the current market, it might make sense. If if the market is going down dramatically, if you're losing 20% of your portfolio, might as well pay as little as possible and just stay invested through a low cost, you know, beta ETF. So the, the appeal of these things really is sticky. It's it's forever. But, you know, there are interesting things that are attracting money. I mean, if you think that TQQQ, you know, the, the leverage QQQ fund is among top 10 asset gatherers this year, tells you that there is appetite for, you know, let's find something that may work better <laughs> in a market where everything is working poorly. So it's, it's been fascinating to watch the pockets that people are trying to find performance at. So out of all of that, what's the most interesting thing that you've seen beyond TQQQ, which I think is pretty fascinating? I think, I mean, this has been obviously the year for commodities. It's a story that lost some steam recently, but I think to see a fund like PGBC, which is, you know, the commodity futures fund gather like almost more $9 billion, I think, here today at almost $10 billion. That is a lot of money going into funds that have been around for a long time, just classic commodity ETFs. So I think it's been just fascinating to see the appetite for parts of the market that for as long as we've been around in this industry, we hear about the importance of portfolio diversification and owning all these other types of assets to make sure your portfolio is properly diversified for any kind of market environment. But in reality, what we hear is that most investors, most advisors are actually very underallocated to the diversifiers like commodities, for example, real assets, that kind of stuff. And we're seeing that this year, all of a sudden, everybody woke up to that and see massive amounts of money go going to these things, which it makes sense. I also think it's interesting that from a product innovation perspective, I mean, this has been a really interesting year. I mean, look at the amount of funds that we've seen come up this year that are either inflation hedging, interest rate hedging. It's it's the year of the hedge at a time when no hedge seems to be working. So you have numbers of funds that are offering different takes on, on this kind of theme and we have the first stagflation ETF, Merck launched that ETF earlier this year, which so now you have all deflations covered, inflation, deflation, stagflation. So as always, we see ETF issuers very quick to pick up on where's the white space, where's the opportunity, where there's new ground to explore and rush to fill that space. It's kind of interesting that, you know, we saw with thematic ETFs, for example, they were super, super hot in the last couple of years. And this year, they're kind of out of favor. So the question is, you know, are some of these ETFs going to be ahead of their time, just in time, or are they chasing a thing that's going to fade and miss that opportunity? So that's the part we never know. We just have to wait and see what happens. But I think it's really cool that if you're an ETF investor today, you can express any view, whether you believe in in recession, you want to benefit from interest rates or you want to hedge that. You want to chase inflation beneficiaries or you want to completely avoid that story. You, you know, you want to go better on stagflation or you want you're focusing on recession. I mean, anything you believe in, there is a, an ETF tool for you to go implement it. And uh, I think that's always super cool. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Just how there seems to be a solution offered for almost any problem you could think of at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am curious what that stagflation PS is going to do too, for sure, depending on what happens. I mean, we just had inflation hit 9%. That's oh, insane. <laughs> It's insane. It keeps getting insaner and insaner, (laughs) if that's even a word. Um, (laughs) It's just, it's crazy. But, you know, from an ETF perspective, it tells you, too, that there is still room. I mean, we're nearing 3,000 ETFs. We'll probably hit that milestone this year, 3,000 U.S. listed ETFs. We're almost there. And... And you, the old prevailing story, the top three dominate the fl- the assets and the flows, the top five run the world, all that kind of stuff. But if you look at, you know, from a total ETF assets perspective, you know, iShares total ETF AUM is down 15% year to date. Vanguard is down 13% year to date. State Street is down 15% year to date. Schwab is down. First Trust is down. So, these, these big issuers, I mean, they're suffering. They may be attracting assets, but the market performance is hurting. So in a way, it's been kind of an interesting opportunity for these small up-and-coming issuers that are trying to innovate with these really timely type of offerings. Because if you look at, I mean, look at Pacer. It's not exactly a brand new issuer. It's, it's been around, but I mean, it's up 40% its assets. I mean, the... The COWS ETF, COWZ, what a year that fund has had. It's incredible. He has picked up a ton of assets. I think it's one of the most popular funds this year. Probably wound up being that, which is the whole play on the free cash flow story, the dividend story, the finding income somewhere else, the quality focus, but a phenomenal year for Pacer. Crane shares total assets is up about 20%. The success of KWAB, you know, China Internet, Vanti's Distillate, with its focus also on quality and, and fundamentals and assets are up 20%. So it's it's cool to see some of these new play newer players, smaller players really hitting a stride with products that are trying to innovate, to offer solutions that are new and, and novel in, in different ways. Yeah, I've I've actually thought that Pacer had a really interesting lineup for a long time with those with like you said the cash cows in particular, and they've had some interesting like kind of almost thematic real estate funds. I think they had something like like a server fund SRVR. I think the ticker is. I hope I have that right. I always, I've been looking at that one for a while. Yeah, I think their first breakout that I remember was PTLC. I remember when that uh, that came to market, we talked about it nonstop and how I was like, oh, this thing is so cool and innovative. So they they really do come up with some interesting stuff. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I remember when TTLC was something we talked about a lot. I think that just that toggle strategy was so interesting with what they were doing there. And the market was on an uptrend though. So I think maybe that aspect of it was kind of devalued in a way. Yeah. And and what I think the challenge with all this, of course, is that I think if you look at the the types of launches, the, you know, they tend to be more complex. So, you know, I think the era of the simple market cap weighted beta is pretty much explored and done. 
There's not a lot of innovation in that space. So these funds tend to be more complex. Like a lot of the, you know, we have some risk parity things. You have all of these hedging stories, a lot of uses of derivatives now. It's it's all this stuff, options. This is becoming way more common for an industry that has just idolized simplicity. I mean, we love simple, simple, straightforward, but the past seems to be increasingly complex, which for an investor means that due diligence, it's a job that just keeps getting harder, which is where I think you and ETFs.com, us at the ETF think tank, that's the space we navigate. You know, the calm, free research, free data tools, resources, however we can help in that conversation, because I think the conversation is just getting more and more difficult in a market environment that's very difficult. And ETF solutions that are, you know, awesome, but they're not as easy uh, to understand a lot of times. So the homework is just getting harder. Absolutely. Are there any other kind of like trends that you see ahead of us going forward? Any developments, other developments? Because you've talked a little bit, you've taken a sort of forward looking bent. Is there anything else that you see kind of like cropping up ahead of us? That's a great question. I, I think my crystal ball is broken today. <laughs> I have no idea what happens next. I mean, what? I didn't see 9% inflation. So let's start there. So who <laughs> knows what happens next? But I mean, clearly, I think the crypto conversation is going to come back. It's a little bit on on pause as this market digests the performance that I think everybody was shocked by and all the cryptocurrencies and blockchain and all that stuff. I think the ESG conversation is, I think it took a back seat in this whole environment of we're more in a survival mode right now than we are in let's go ESG and, and do good. So I think that conversation is going to start heating up again. The SEC has been making statements about it. I think that will eventually, you know, come more to the forefront. And just, you know, this week I was just interesting podcasts and spaces conversations. I know Dave just did one yesterday with Nate. I mean, so the conversation is there and I think we're going to start seeing more coming out. There's interesting funds coming out in the ESG space. We alone have, you know, Ahoy that has come out. We have one that's an anti-ESG ETF, ORFN that has come out. So just interesting takes on, on that ESG story. I think that has way more legs to go and it'll be interesting to watch what happens. And then I mean, we're at the dawn of the leverage and inverse single stock ETFs, which, you know, you and I were just talking about that before the show and it should come any day now and talk about a whole new ball game for ETF investors. I mean, what do you do with these things? And for how much we love that ETFs provide diversification, this is the opposite of that. <laughs> it is absolute concentration and leverage on top of it. So it's going to be fascinating to see who's going to use these things. How are they going to be, you know, accepted, implemented, and what impact will they have? Because, you know, if you get just crazy bets going in a single company stock, I mean, ETFs all, all over in every segment will own that specific stock. So how is that going to impact actually the entire ecosystem? You'd be really, really, I'm just, I can't wait to see what happens in that space. Yeah, I can't help but think that 
John Bogle would have some very strong words to say about those products. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't even imagine. I cannot even imagine. I mean, the, the fact that they're coming to market and, you know, it's not often that we see things be approved by the SEC when there's even a divergence of opinion within the SEC. I mean, so they are approved. They're coming to market any day now. But the SEC, you know, like Commissioner Crenshaw, I think, came out and had this really strong letter that came out. And, you know, she used the word disappointed. She she's saying, how can you be a fiduciary and recommend these things to to your customer? And which tells you, you know, if that's the case, then these are going to go straight to the retail crowd. And I mean, what retail crowd is it targeting? Is it targeting the GameStop crowd, the AMC crowd? Is it targeting the professional traders? And I mean, as you know, anytime, how often do we talk about leverage inverse, daily reset, compounding, all these things that, you know, we talk about it all the time. So we think it's widely known, but we know that's not the case. So are people going to really understand what they're getting into? Are a lot of people going to get burnt? It's just really interesting that with all the innovation we've had and all of, you know, 30 years of ETFs and, and different slices of the market that we're now on the dawn of the leveraged single stock fund. I find that just kind of surprising, kind of mind boggling and kind of exciting, really. I mean, because just curious to see if, if these will stick and, and what they will mean for the market. It's going to make for some interesting market watching, I think, probably for the next year or so while this, you know, these funds and, you know, investor interest in them plays out. Yeah, because that's just what we need. We've been so bored this year. I'm <laughs> glad we're finally going to get some action. Yeah, such a boring year. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to end there. Cynthia, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. This has been great reconnecting with you and I've really enjoyed our chat. Hey, thanks, Heather. Thanks for having me and always, always a pleasure to catch up. Same here. Listeners, thanks for joining us as well. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. For all episodes of ETF Working Lunch, please check out ETF.com or any of the major podcast platforms. See you next time. <laughs>